Welcome to the To Your Bible, a custom designed To Your Bible reading plan with a weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here again with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so uh, we are finishing up today the book of Leviticus and getting into the book of Numbers. Then. I know. Can you guys believe that we're about to finish Leviticus? <laughs> yep. Shocking. Yep. We're going to get through it. And um, and then we'll start a book that uh, probably has a worse reputation than you will experience reading through mm-hmm. it. Um, and so, uh, but we're only going to get just a little bit of a taste of that book today. And so... Um, Yeah, so we're going to pick up, and we're still talking about priesthood and holiness and all the other things that Leviticus tends to put a lot of time and emphasis on. And um, once again, we're talking about the priests in in chapter 21, and I mean, their role is sacred space, as we've talked about in this this book so far. They are representatives of God. They are um, God's uh, representatives of the people to God and God to the people. Uh, but, but some of their tasks, some of their roles is around the temple and sacred space and blood and sacrifices and all this kind of stuff. And so like going to war or, um, being in the house where there's a dead body and stuff like, like there's a lot of things that they have to do that are very distinct from everybody else that they're not allowed, um, in, in a lot of places. And so the house where there's a dead body or um, things like that are, are given as instruction. And, and not only that, but there's ways that they're not even supposed to look like all the other priests from the other nations and all the other practices of the other nations, like, like trimming the edges of the beard or having a bald spot and like cutting your hair so that it's bald in certain spots or tattoos or whatever it may be. There's a lot of ways that, that they can't and shouldn't look like all the practices that they'll see in the surrounding countries and the surrounding priesthoods and the surrounding practices. And, and so they are called to be this distinct people. And so um, we continue to see that through this text. Yeah. And, and I think reading about the priests over and over and over again can feel repetitive and it can feel redundant. But the point here is that Israel was a nation that was being set up around principles and structures that were designed so God could dwell among them and that they would worship God fully and truly and righteously. And so if this is a community that is being built around the worship of Yahweh in specific ways, there's going to be a ton of time given to the role of these priests who are these mediators between the people and God. So when we look at the big picture, it makes sense as to why there is so much devoted to the priesthood. Yep. And there's more instructions about what's acceptable when it comes to God, which once again, this is a a pretty common theme throughout this book of going, God's not willy nilly on things that um, he he finds acceptable worship, acceptable offerings uh, to him. Yeah. And I think as I, as I continue to read about the different kind of offerings in Leviticus, I kept thinking of Romans 12, one, where we're talked about how we're a living sacrifice and offering. And so, um, you know, the Jews who are reading that book or Paul, even who is writing it, when they think about offerings, what they are thinking about is these sacrifices, these animals that are slaughtered in the tabernacle or in the temple. And then he commands us to be those living sacrifices and those offerings. And so the challenging thing here for me and for us, when we consider what it looks like to be an acceptable offering is that God may be requiring something of us. We don't get to choose what we offer to God, but God sets out specific requirements. And so um, that's what we need to offer to him in return. You can't just pick whatever you feel like giving to God, but there are things he demands. And that's what the requirements of an offering is. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so uh, we transition to uh, the feasts in um, these instructions about feasts and festivals that the, that the Israelites will have. And I, I always feel like it's, 
it's great that um, God commands, and we're going to see him command about the Sabbath, but command about these feasts too. Like God's telling his people, I want you to celebrate. <laughs> I want you to remember. I want you to remember my provision. I want you to, to look back and, and to be thankful, but I, but I want you to celebrate. I want you to have these, these festivals, these practices, these uh, parts of, of remembering and, and in some ways partying, like finding joy uh, as a people together. And so, um, yeah. And so right. we get some commands around that. Being a follower of God doesn't have to be boring and it doesn't have to be just following lists of rules, which is kind of feels like what we've been reading so far. But here's the emphasis. Like, I have also called you to be people who celebrate, who remember what I've done and honestly, who are going to rest a lot more and celebrate a lot more than the cultures around them. And I love that the first feast is actually just the thing that we do once a week. Yeah. Uh, it's like, hey, I want you to have parties. And let me remind you, every week you have this little mini feast, this little mini party um, to, to, to rest, to, to enjoy creation, to, to remember what I have done. Uh, there's a lot of different passages that will tie Sabbath to different themes and different ideas. And sometimes it's to creation week. Sometimes it's to their journey out of Israel or out of Egypt. And so um, it, it's some of that of like, look, I want you to rest. I want you to remember. I want you to, to know your part in the bigger story of what God's doing. I want you to remember that God's more in control than you are. I want you to remember that God has brought you out of Egypt, all these sort of ideas that they would stop and, and they would remember and enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, remembering like, Remembering back, like, hey, remember that time we were slaves and we didn't get a break? Well, now we are going to take one break a week to remember that we're not slaves anymore. Or we're not slaves to Pharaoh anymore. Right. We're slaves to God. And he gives us rest because he's a good master. Yep. And so I'll include a little image link in the show notes about sort of a, a almost like a circular calendar uh, with where some of these fall sort of in relation to the months that we know them as. Uh, and so uh, the first festival, uh, I just walk through uh, these festivals. Um the first festival we really encounter after Sabbath is Passover. Uh, and so um, just thinking through that calendar uh, in the wintertime, I'll, I'll start in the wintertime. There's no festival per se in the winter for uh, at least, at least in uh, this Jewish calendar here, there's no festival in the wintertime, but the wintertime would be where you plant, where you start things. And there's festivals that tie into the crops and, and stuff like that. So uh, this is the time where you would plant in the ground. You would, you would do all the work uh, to, to, have a crop in the springtime. So, uh, that would happen in the winter. So springtime would come around. The first festival we encounter is Passover, which, um, once again, it's a celebration of the exodus out of Egypt, particularly about, uh, the lamp, uh, the, the blood on the doorway, um, which we covered certainly in Exodus. Mm-hmm. And, uh, each of these festivals has a tie into Jesus or a tie in the new Testament. And this one certainly, um, with the communion meal, Jesus certainly redefines the elements that he is, he is the Passover lamb and his blood is the one who initiates a new covenant and his bread, his body would be the, the, the death, the, the, the thing that, uh, would cause death now to pass over mm-hmm. uh, his people. And so we get from Passover to unleavened bread. So, uh, unleavened bread, Passover is really just a 24 hour, celebration uh on, on the feast of unleavened bread is actually a week-long deal uh, and happens immediately after passover and so um this is remembering their journey out of of egypt itself where they had to leave without baking any bread and so or without doing any leavening they couldn't have bread it just couldn't be leavened and leavening from that point on becomes a, a symbol constantly in scripture of sin and so um in a lot of ways like 
their celebration and how I think as, as new Testament people, we think about it. Like Jesus is the one who, who purges us from sin, from the yeast in us that, that we in some ways become unleavened bread because he was unleavened bread. Um, and so there's sort of that, that beautiful picture played out and then first fruits, which, um, I would say as New Testament believers, it's probably a holiday we, we don't highlight it enough and, and, um, or at least make the connection to it enough. We certainly highlight it enough because it was Easter. Uh, and the Feast of First Fruits is, is the first Sunday after Passover. And so, um, Jesus's resurrection would have been on first fruits Sunday. And, uh, it was the first fruits of the harvest. That's what the, the festival existed for was, Hey, the, the things are starting to butt up and we're getting sort of the first wave of crop. Um, and it's not the best of the crop yet, uh, but it's the first things we have and, um, celebrating God's provision and, and his deliverance. And so, um, Paul, I think picks up on this in first Corinthians 15, when he starts talking about, mm-hmm. uh, Christ being raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. So sort of this idea of first fruit, uh, or lead to verse 23 in that chapter of, of Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ as if Christ is first. And then everybody who would come after, and so summer would come in and about 50 days after that festival or feast of first fruits, there would be the feast of weeks, uh, or as we often call it Pentecost. This is sort of the main harvest festival, at least the, the end of the grain festival. Uh, and I think the, the best way to sometimes think about this festival is almost like Thanksgiving. I mean, this is a celebration of food and festival um, or feasting. Uh, and so um, celebrating the harvest that was, that, that, that God has provided, that God has given. And so, um, once again, I mean, the, the, the sending of the spirit, which we read about in X two as part of our readings right now is, is the starting of, of the harvest. Like, this is, this is the harvest of God now for every tongue, tribe and nation that Pentecost has ushered in. So it's cool to think about how Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first fruits Mm -hmm. of God's, the fruit that we see, I guess, of God's power over death. Yeah. And then the people who come to Christ on Pentecost are um, the further fruit and yeah. produce of that harvest. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking of, the harvest of, <clears throat> of the d- defeating of death. Yeah. And then we get into the fall and we get this um, trumpet, the, the feast or festival of trumpets. And um, basically it's the end of the harvest season. This is when we're kind of wrapping up the different phases of the crops and, and, and kind of getting to an end of the harvest. And, um, and so it's sort of a marker, which is interesting too, because you'll see it's sort of um, very um, eschatological, the, the, the word for sort of like the, the future things to come, um, the, the stories that talk about sort of the end of the age when God will return to enact judgment and to wrap this world up. Uh, there's a lot of talk about trumpets blowing and stuff like that. And I think it's because the harvest is coming to an end. And so, uh, 10 days after that, uh, we get the day of atonement, which uh, we talked about a bit in Leviticus, uh, of, uh, the day that, um, the high priest can go into the, the Holy of Holies, the most special spot, um, and sort of the reset button for the tabernacle itself. And then, uh, the feast of tabernacles, which before that, I just want to yeah, say one thing cool about the day of atonement is that they are not allowed to work on the day of atonement. And I think the picture we get there is that God is the work who one who does the work of atoning for us as well. Like even though they come and bring sacrifices, God is the one who atones for us. He's yeah. the worker. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The Jesus piece is, is all over the new Testament, particularly in the book of Hebrews mm-hmm. where um, Jesus is now our high priest who goes into the, 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 not the temple, not the temple or tabernacle on earth, but God's 
sort of heavenly temple. And then uh, the tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths. Um, this would come five days after the Day of Atonement. And it would recall their time when, when as Israelites, they'd be sojourning in the desert, uh, that they wouldn't have a home, but that, that God was there present leading them. And in a lot of ways, um, the, the like when John introduces Jesus in, in John 1, he says, Christ came and, and dwelled. He, he actually tabernacled with mm-hmm. us. And um, now we who have the spirit of God, we are sort of like walking tabernacles. And one day we'll dwell with God again in the new heavens, new earth. And so this idea of God's people remembering and reminding themselves of this theme of tabernacling, um, I think is really important. Yeah, I mean, we even see that in Second Corinthians 5, where Paul talks about these tents of bodies that we wear and the longing for a true permanent home. Yep. And so I think that more or less covers most of these festivals and uh, things that as Christians, I think we can think through. I think certainly we tie Easter together with Passover quite a bit. Um, and then depending on your liturgical background, you might celebrate something like Pentecost Sunday, but um, day of atonement, we, we have that every day with Jesus and mm-hmm. some of the other festivals certainly are fulfilled all the time in Jesus. But um, yeah. And so uh, it's important to know sort of how those things line up and how they're fulfilled in Jesus. And then we get to uh, sort of a, a bit of a turn to go back to the, sort of the tabernacle here. And we get uh, statements around the, the lamps uh, in in the tent and then the bread, the show bread that's in the tent. And to me, as I sort of read those, I sort of think through, okay, like almost like um, – uh, uh, Goldilocks, like she's finding these, these bowls that are warm and stuff like that as if someone was there or someone had been there. And I think, I think the lamping lit and the bread on the table is just like a picture. Like when you walk into the tabernacle, these reminders that God is in the house, like he's here, he's dwelling, his light is on, his food is out. Um, yes, he's behind the temple. He's behind the curtain in some ways, uh, but he's present. He's, he's there at that moment. Yeah. And then we take a turn to yeah, talk about like punishment. A big turn. <laughs> yeah, about the punishment for blasphemy yeah. with a with a story to accompany it. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting because we get that and the eye for the eye kind of back to back, and 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 they're um, they're they're in some ways harsh punishments, particularly around blasphemy. But um, uh, but the eye for the eye, I, I think when we get to that, um, it, it's very much trying to teach. Um, what is uh, commensurate justice uh, that that justice would be equal to the crimes uh, that um, it, it was pretty rare that any even even ancient Jewish person interpreted it super literally. So if you hurt your eye or if you hurt someone else's eye, the the goal wasn't for you to hurt your eye too. It was sort of like, all right, let's let's repay on equal uh, circumstances. Justice requires that in some ways, and so um, yeah, but but some required it. If you were a blasphemer, if you were a murderer, guess what? Like you could die for those sort of things. God, God cared about his image being destroyed and he cared about his name being destroyed. Um, But all other things was a little more case by case in a lot of ways. And I think at the end of the day, Israel chose to leave Egypt to go and follow God and worship God and follow his ways. And God is being very, very clear that for him to dwell with his people, set apartness is required. And there is no tolerance for those who want to be among Israel, but do not want to follow God's laws and want to create and make their own laws. Um, 
there's an invitation into God's best for, for God and his glory and also for us. Um, and I think the same thing goes with an eye for an eye. And I just want to make a little note here. We're not going to jump into the argument for capital punishment. A lot of people will use this passage to argue for it. Uh, but this is a great example of kind of thematically how we need to look at all of the scriptural references towards a specific subject before we make a full determination on whether something is ordained or okay with God or not. Yep. And then we get into uh, what is the Sabbath year and eventually also the year of Jubilee. So um, not only were they every seven days do certain kind of celebrations, but every seven years they were required to let the land sort of have its rest as well. Um, And then every seven times seven years, uh, 49 years, they would have this year of Jubilee as well. And um, both of those, I think, have inherent in sort of their teaching. Uh, one was sort of this idea that like, Hey, this, this land is not yours, that, that right. it is God's, that it is inherently doesn't belong to you. Like every seven years you need to stop farming it and let it, let God just do what he's going to do with the land and eat from that. Um, that you're not the, you're, you're not the original owner. Um, and, and then the year of Jubilee, which is uh, even more so is sort of like this giant reset. Uh, and I think the same way that the day of atonement, sort of a, a reset for the tabernacle to, to sort of go, okay, of all the sins, of all the brokenness, of all the mess, of all the ways that things can be defiled, we're going to, we're going to cover all of that all in one, one day. Uh, I think the ways that a country itself can, can be socioeconomically or spiritually or whatever it is, like land ownership, all those things can be shifted around and some of that not be the purest process. It was sort of like this reset button to say, Hey, if God's going to dwell in us as a people, um, then, then we're going to almost have this reset to go back to some of the ways that, that where we were when he first dwelled with us the first time. Um, it's sort of like a, um, yeah, of putting things back in their place in some ways mm-hmm. once, once every 49 years. Yeah. And and it's a reminder, like you said, that they are stewards of the land and of what they have. It was a gift to them from God, but, but it's ultimately God's. And so it's when we start to feel like we own or we can control something that we are unwilling to let it go. But when we understand who the true owner is, and again, that he's good and he wants to dwell with his people, we are willing to release and trust God to do what is best, not just for me, but for the entire community. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, as part of that reset is the reset of like how how do we deal with people in poverty? How, how do we deal with um, people that are enslaved? And um, I, I know we've talked about this on the podcast before, but but making sure that like at least we know like some of the ways that sort of American historical slavery functioned, and some of the ways that ancient slavery and and the systems that existed back then, uh, there's just not a, a clear one to one at all between the two. Now it doesn't mean there's not parts of sort of ancient slavery systems that, that we would still sort of cringe or maybe buck against uh, a little bit. But remember, these are not kidnapped individuals. These are, uh, and there were a whole lot of laws around how you must treat them according to the Torah. Um, that, uh, the, the, the other option is, is often destitution and starvation. And so, um, in some ways these are support systems that existed, even sort of ancient practices, uh, for, for people to, to have sustenance and, uh, provision, uh, in the mm-hmm. midst of sort of their, their indenturedness. And so um, there's a reason why even in, in Greek, the word servant and the word slave can be interchangeable because uh, sometimes in English we're, we, we cringe at slave, but we're okay with the word servant. And um, it's just the difficulty of, of a very different mindset and understanding than, than how we would think about those kind of things. Yeah. 
And so uh, chapter 26, the second to last chapter, we suddenly get these instructions about sort of blessing and cursing and, um, or, and, and what happens if they obey and what happens when they disobey. And um, it's sort of, a, in some ways, a, a beautiful end to the book, even though we get one more chapter after this. But uh, this very much saying, look, when you get to this land, if you do what I've called you to do, then, then there will be blessings that tie with that. I will, I will be with you. You'll be my people. And it's not necessarily Eden again, but it has a whole lot of overtones of like God being there with his people. Like mm-hmm. if, if here's what will make God happy, which is glorifying God. And, and here's what will make the people happy. And so um, that's sort of that idea. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of language that's similar to Genesis one and two, where it talks about how God will dwell among them and walk with them and they're to be fruitful and multiply and God will confirm his covenant with them. Like these are awesome blessings. It's really cool. And something I read talks about how covenant documents are, often had blessings and curses near the end of them. And so this whole book of Leviticus is kind of is another indicator that this book is meant to be a covenant between God and his people. Yep, completely. And then we get uh, the punishments, which uh, almost seem to escalate in tone as you read through them. Uh, and uh, I always think like sometimes people read the Old Testament and, and like, God just seems so arbitrarily angry. I'm like, well, no, he's kind of laid out. Here's, here's, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I don't want you to do. And if you don't do those things, here's some of the ways that it will go for you. And um, he, he's, he's not vague. He's, he's pretty clear here. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I think, you know, sometimes like reading about this right now, you're like, oh, whatever, it's just reading the rules and stuff. But as we read through the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament, we're going to see so many references back to these laws and to Leviticus. And so we will see the fulfillment of these curses for disobedience later on in the Bible. And it'll be really cool as you continue with the reading plan to be like, oh, yeah, I know I read about that and I saw that this happened here. Or, oh, they didn't follow that Sabbath year which is talked about in Leviticus. And then I think the thing that's so cool about this punishment for disobedience piece is that there's a qualifier. But if you confess, God says, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and Isaac and Abraham in the land. There's always hope and there's always redemption available for for God's people. Yeah. God, God's graciousness is still over their disobedience if, if they come and repent and yeah. confess. And so um, God's not trying to to smite them. He wants them to flourish and he wants them to, to glorify him. And, uh, those two things happen often simultaneously. And so, um, and, but he's saying, look, like if you walk away from me, there's, 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 that's not okay. But if you come back to me, Oh, we're, we're all good again. Yeah. (laughs) And so, um, and then we get chapter 27, which sort of feels like an added thing, but um, it's sort of like, okay, uh, to me, as I read it, I'm like, well, it felt like the priest had plenty of food if you read through all the laws, but they still have no money. And so it's almost like, uh, okay, well, if you want to contribute to the ta- to the temple or to the tabernacle, here's different ways you could do that based upon your position in life. Here's, here's different values you can give uh, to, um, to, to, the, to the tabernacle and to the priesthood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as we wrapped up Leviticus, what, what do you feel like is a personal takeaway, a lesson that, that as you read it kind of, kind of hit you this time? So as I, I was thinking about this as we wrapped it up, and I think it's really good for me that I stopped to think like, what is it? What did I learn? What stood out to me in Leviticus? And uh, quite a few things, but I think the biggest thing is how important God's holiness is. Uh, we say it's really important, but it's not something we spend a lot of time thinking about or talking about, at least in our modern age. We talk so much more about the approachability of God, which is also true. But 
I need to approach and understand God is holy and is set apart and is different than me. And my relationship with him isn't some sort of negotiation where God gives a little and I give give a little and we come to some sort of mutual agreement on how to be in relationship. But God is the one who gives the requirements um, and his requirements are good. Even if I don't understand them or they don't make sense to me, I have to know that He is good and he's Yahweh and He is worthy of my worship, uh, whether I understand it or not. And then I I just don't want to take for granted the fact that um, God dwells within me because of the Holy Spirit and because of Jesus Christ. Because when you look at everything Israel did so that God could dwell among them, the fact that I have that is amazing. And, and I just don't want to forget that. Yeah, that, that whole dwelling piece was probably my biggest takeaway of um, like the the amount of effort <laughs> that that uh, was was there so that all the things that had to be washed clean, all the things that had to happen, all the blood that had to be spilled, all the all the different practices, just so they would have this dwelling in, in a very incomplete, in some ways, still dwelling of of God amongst them. And then for for Paul to come along and like just say the revolutionary statements to say like your body is the temple. It's like oh, because yeah. I mean we haven't gotten there yet, but but the temple practices were were pretty much a, a, a very similar to the tabernacle practices and. Um, the, the the fact that Paul would be like, you know what, your bodies are, are the temple. Just how mind-blowing to an, an ancient Israelite, or, or, or as us, as we read Leviticus. Like, So all that work of God dwelling in that tabernacle is covered now by Jesus's blood in our bodies. And, mm-hmm. and that... Um, there's sort of that that cleansing, that purging that Jesus's blood does for us now in such a way that the Holy Spirit God himself, the, the, the fire, the smoke, everything is, is, is represented in us. And, um, and only that, but like how mind blowing it was for them when the spirit came and dwelled on, uh, the tabernacle and, and on the temple too, when we get there of like, they fell on their faces and, and, and all this kind of stuff. It's like, do, do I have that same sense of awe around the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in me? And, um, yeah. Yeah. So we move on, we say goodbye to Leviticus and move on to the book of Numbers. Uh, And so we're going to pick up kind of right where we left off, right at the sort of Sinai, uh, the end of Sinai and then the move, this book kind of walks through the move towards Canaan. Yeah. So Uh, they were at Sinai for a year getting these laws and then they're going to be walking towards Canaan for the next 40-ish years, 38 years. Yep. 38 years with a little bit on that and on. Um, and if you read a Hebrew Bible, it's actually not called Numbers. It's called In the Wilderness, which uh, makes a whole lot of sense. This book is not just a census, even though sometimes we highlight the boredom of the census. But uh, there's a lot of narrative and a lot of stories, a lot of really good ones that are in there, too. Uh, and so we'll encounter those as we go. But to remind us, we do start with a census. Um, yeah. So uh, so one of the things, though, as you read Numbers to look out for it, is just that we see God fulfilling his promises to Abraham. We see him happening gradually, but look at Genesis 12 again. His promise to to bless Abraham to be a blessing and to be fruitful and multiply and increase. Uh, we're going to see that. Yeah, and this, and and remember, this is still Israel getting to know who Yahweh is. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is still part of their journey. I mean, they've been in a mountain for a year, kind of hearing, "Here's what I want you to do, and here's what I don't want you to do." But there hasn't been a whole lot of um, lessons uh, to be learned yet. They've learned a few, uh, but there's going to be more learned in these. 40 years than uh, just that first walk to Sinai. Yeah. <clears throat> so they do take a census of their military people, uh, and there's a lot of them. And so if you're going to be taking a land, you might as well know what you got, um, even though God will teach them a lesson about using 
might and power for how to conquer, but um, they're at least going to take a census of this. Yeah, but the Levites did not have to be included in this census because they weren't going to go to war. Their yeah. job was to guard and protect and and the tabernacle and to mediate yeah. between God and man. Yeah. So they had a different role. Yeah, killing a bunch of people and getting dead human blood all over you is probably not the best way to be a priest. And so um, it was definitely separating them out from yeah. that task. And a reminder that Israel existed and this community existed to worship God. And so if they lose their priests, like what's the point of the <laughs> right. community existing? Yeah, yeah, they've lost the very thing that is a symbol of what they are called to be, which is a nation of priests. And then uh, there's an arrangement of the camp is sort of laid out. I'll include a little map link as well to sort of show how some of that is laid out. Yeah, but it, it's kind of cool that the tabernacle's in the middle of the way the camp is laid out. And then, do we talk about this this week or next week? I can't remember. With Judah? Well, I'm just, well, I'll say it now. So the tabernacle's in the middle and the Levites are camping around it. And then, yeah, yeah. Judah's given a preeminent spot, which yep. is, makes a lot of sense because the kings come out of Judah. Yep. All right. Let's get to some New Testament uh, into the book of Acts. We don't go very far in terms of a whole bunch of chapter coverages, but um, there's some long chapters in here or long sections. And so we pick up at Pentecost where uh, Peter now is going to reflect on what has just happened. Um, and remember, there's this is a festival weekend. And so there's a lot of people here. Uh, there's a lot of people in town from all different nations. Um, and the word house could be a literal house, but it was also a word that was used for the temple, which may explain why so many people can overhear them. Maybe the the, the, the Holy Spirit's actually falling on the temple, and the, or at least the, the grounds of the temple. Uh, it's an interesting way to think about it. Um, once again, there's a lot of debate, and who knows. But um, but yeah, uh, I think it's a cool symbolism if that's, that's mm -hmm. what's happening here. Uh, yeah, we're going to read a lot of Peter's sermons, and if you just kind of give them cursory glances, they might get kind of boring and redundant. But when you start to pay attention to the specifics and the details. There's just, there's so much power in it. Peter knows who he's speaking to and he speaks specifically to his audience. He changes his words and his points of emphasis depending on who's listening because he wants everybody to know and hear the gospel. And I just want to read one verse that I loved so much when I read this. Uh, <laughs> verse 24, Peter says, God raised him being Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Think of the power in that statement. Even now, 2000 years after we know that Jesus raised from the dead, it's still to think that like it is not, it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death it is amazing. And it gives so much hope when we consider that as we face death around us every day in our lives. Yeah. It's, I'm, I'm always um, impressed on the, the change between the, the resurrection and the disciples still totally fumbling. Like um, even at the end of John, they leave the tomb and they say, cause we didn't understand how the scripture was working. Like they didn't understand how the scripture was going to be fulfilled in his resurrection. And then 50 days later, they're suddenly like, Oh, this is what that was. And this is what that was. And this is what, yeah. and suddenly like the old Testament becomes this whole open area of interpretation of, of the, who the Messiah was. And Peter quotes it saying like, all right, this Holy spirit thing, this whole, this whole thing that just happened with the tongues of fire and all that, like this is Joel too, that Joel's been talking about this. And these, these are the last days now. These are uh, the Holy spirit coming out and, and things are changing and it's going to look very different. And there's going to be prophecies and people dreaming dreams and all this kind of stuff is, is going to be a part of this. And so, um, Peter's talking about that sort of phase of history now where the Holy Spirit is here in a unique way that had never been there before. 
And so he speaks on David a lot, uh, which if you read your Psalm this week, uh, you'll even see some of the the, the passages quoted. Um, but uh, sort of pointing out, look, David's still in the grave. Like we we know where his tomb is, and David didn't ascend to the right hand of the Father, but Jesus doesn't have a grave anymore and ascended. Like yeah. we have one better than David here. Like, and, and he was God. He was not just any man, um, which was really the, the controversial claim. Uh, the, the idea that, that, that this, this man who came the Messiah, even, even the idea that the Messiah itself would be God um, was, was a pretty crazy pr- um, proclamation. And so these early disciples now have to tell everybody, look, this man who lived was actually God walking among us. Yeah. And so, yeah. And then uh, the end of the chapter becomes sort of all the believers having things in common. I, I, th- I think this is interesting, that the sort of connection here, because that the festival that they're there for is Pentecost. And, and Pentecost is the wheat festival. It's like the Thanksgiving festival. But one of the things that they emphasized was as part of this festival, look, you, you are not to cut the corners of your field. You are to leave them for the alien, the orphan, the widow, those who are hungry, all those sort of things. They would read Ruth at Pentecost, which includes mm-hmm. like that story in practice. Um, and, and so... Part of the Pentecostal celebration was making sure that the poor and needy had everything they needed. And so the first thing we hear about the church, the Holy Spirit filled church, is that they are doing the very thing that they are called to do. Like they're actually enacting the stuff that Israel always struggled to do. And, and by filled with the Spirit, like if you want to be Pentecostal, you care for the poor, the hungry, those in need. Like that is just a part of the celebration. And, and for once, like, because of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, they are being obedient to exactly what God has called them to do. Yeah, and, and I think seeing, especially this idea of them sharing possessions freely, it's cool that we're reading this the same time we're reading about it in Leviticus, that we people's lands and properties and rights and dignity are restored to them over time. It's this understanding that we are, if we are saved by God and God provides everything we need, we don't have to fight so hard to provide for ourselves or assume ownership, but we can give freely. Uh, but I do want to be clear that that what this isn't advocating for necessarily is some sort of like socialist commune. We they didn't they shared everything freely, but giving was still voluntary, and people still had possessions. Um, and so, yeah. They were, and, and I think what's great about that is that it wasn't obligatory. They, right. as they came to know the Lord, as they grew in their faith, would become progressively more and more generous. And sure, it doesn't happen perfectly, but we would see the church. I mean, this is all they had, and so they would learn how to be followers of Jesus. They would share their possessions. They would eat together and celebrate communion together, and they'd pray together. Yeah, yeah, and. and- and Luke will go on to point just how one they were in sort of heart and mind. Like there was this, this oneness of them as a people. And so they, they sought to, to share and to care for each other in, in ways that were pretty radical uh, and uh, continue, I hope, in the church to be radical. <clears throat> so um, uh, we see immediately coming off the, the heels of that, uh, a lame beggar that gets healed by uh, Peter here uh, as Peter and John are continuing sort of the stories of Jesus and what they're doing now they're, they have in some ways some of the some of the power some of the, the Holy Spirit power in them is is supernatural and it's doing the things that Jesus did while he was here on earth as if to say look that same power that that caused Jesus to do some of the stuff he does is in these guys but um, but that's not the sum total of that story because what comes right after that we see them preach. Yeah. It's like the, it just sort of opened a door for them to do the thing that I think was really at hand or really their task, which was to go make disciples. And so, um, 
yeah, those miracles opened the door. They had a purpose. They weren't just for the healing of that person. They were to be followed up with an open door to proclaim the gospel to many. Right. That's when people are curious and it's that person, that beggar is hanging around and people are coming to find out what's going on and they take advantage of that opportunity where they have everyone's ear to share. Yeah. I think it's cool. Um, that they say, you know, so much we read Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. But when we get here into Acts, they say, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They, are, they have a fuller understanding of who he is and know by whose names they are healing and praying and even preaching. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry. Go ahead. The one other thing I want to say is that the first person they heal is someone who has nothing to offer or pay. He's got nothing. Yeah. Uh, and again, we see God's heart towards the poor and towards the vulnerable. Yeah. And he's been in a bad state for a long time as Luke kind of very specifically seems to point out. And so, um, yeah. And, uh, they get challenged for it. Um, they, they proclaim the gospel and then ultimately get thrown before a council that, um, seems to seems seems to basically say like, um, we don't agree with what you're saying, but everybody likes you. So we can't do anything to you at this point. Uh, which, uh, feels a little bit like Jesus was with a few of the, the leadership as well. Like saying like they, 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 they wanted to do something to Jesus, but they couldn't because so many people were being influenced by them. And so, uh, I think there's a, a common pattern that, that Luke establishes here of, of the people and kind of having all things in common or at least share or working towards that. Um, there's sort of the supernatural act that comes after that. Uh, there's the proclamation of the good news and persecution that comes with that. And Acts 2 through 4, Acts 4 through 6, and Acts 7 through 9 include all those. So like they have things in common, but Ananias and Sapphira aren't really doing their job, but but they work on that. And then the apostles have signs of wonders, and then there's persecution and preaching again. And then Acts 7 to 9, there's uh, all things in common, even though the widows aren't being taken care of, but they work on that and they fix that. And then Stephen has signs of wonders, and then he preaches, and then he's persecuted and killed. And so um, I think Luke to an audience that is largely Gentile and churches probably distributed all over, it's as if he's saying, look, like obedience to Jesus, you doing the things that you're called to do, like share things in common and, and to do the miraculous if, if, if that's happening and, and to proclaim the gospel uh, to, to the world, like it's going to include persecution too. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't because Peter and Stephen and the apostles didn't have favor. It was because that that is tied into obedience to God is mm-hmm. is some of this. And so um, it's like a it's like a, a a good pastoral reminder for for Luke to write to these churches that are probably suffering to say, look, you're in good company, <laughs> and yeah. it's not because you're not being blessed. It's simply because um, this is this is part. If if they they did if they did this to Jesus, they will continue to do it to Jesus's followers. Right. And it doesn't require perfection either. Nope. Um, but it, it requires sanctification, personal growth and understanding in your relationship with God. Um, as Peter and John went before the council, I just want you to kind of put yourself in their shoes. Like a month and a half before, who went before a council in the same place? The rabbi. And he was crucified and Peter denied Jesus. And here they are in a similar situation. But they're handling it differently. And it, and it turns out differently. It's just it's interesting to think of how they must have felt uh, walking through those streets or those corridors or whatever and seeing those, maybe the same people who were accusing them. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems like there's at least some of uh, the overlap from this sort of formal Sanhedrin group that's, that's charging them. And um, yeah, they've, they've watched Jesus die from their hands and now are sort of leaving it up to them. I mean, the, Peter's full on bold. 
this time. And maybe that's even part of like why they're amazed at his boldness. It's because that wasn't part of his story before, but now they're amazed at how bold um, he's speaking. And um, yeah. And and once again, like these, these disciples are, are unpacking new ways and and new understandings of, of the old Testament to, to really connect the dots. And, and they're not doing that in a novel way as if they're saying something new. They're just sort of going, look, this is what the stories have always pointed to, like that we would have this Messiah, but he would suffer. And like, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything we've been talking about in the old Testament. And so, um, yeah. And, and making some pretty bold claims, uh, that, um, to say like their salvation and no one else. It's like, okay, like up to that point, Yahweh is the only source of salvation. Like you are trying to be obedient as you can, but yet trusting in sort of the graciousness of Yahweh to save you and for them to come along going, yeah, that's, that's still true. But really in Jesus, there's no other name. And so, uh, equating Yahweh and, and Jesus's name mm-hmm. together, uh, would have been pretty challenging. Yeah. If you were a Bible underliner, I hope you're underlining some really key statements here that is it's also really true. Yeah. There's salvation by no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this is hard for us to really truly want to believe, but we have to, we have to dig in deep. And if you're somebody who struggles with there being one way to heaven, it's okay that you struggle with it, but it doesn't change that it's true. And there's a way like dig in and seek to understand God in it. Or even things like we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Like that just like heaped conviction on me. I can help a lot of times. Um, but I can think of a lot of reasons. Yeah, I know. And it's like, but they couldn't because they were so consumed. Um, And they had the same Holy Spirit dwelling in them that dwells in me. Um, And I have been a Christian for longer than they were at this point. That's (laughs) true. so yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to note here. There's a lot of really powerful truths that are pretty immediately convicting. If if I open my heart to really hear the Lord speak to me as I read. Yep. And so Psalm 110. Uh, this is certainly quoted uh, by Peter in in Acts, and um, the whole Psalm is so Jesus centric in mm-hmm. the language all throughout it. It's like the most quoted in the New Testament. And so uh, there's a lot of Messiah language here. Uh, I think Spurgeon said like, th- this Psalm is entirely about Jesus, <laughs> uh, which is always an interesting way to interpret something as if the Jews had no clue what to do with it for that many years. But um, yeah, it, it has so much Jesus overtones uh, in, yeah. Yeah, I think it's kind of cool to read it because if I were just reading it without an understanding of Jesus, I'd be like, oh, look, it's another Psalm. I wonder how they sang that, you know, right. but understanding it, Understanding how Jesus is the fulfillment of it, you read it in a completely different way, which is pretty cool. Yep. And then Proverbs 16, which uh, written like a good proverb, uh, every line is like this good little punch. And yeah. um, and the first section definitely has a lot of, uh, hey, God, God's God's will and God's ways and God's understanding of the world are way better than ours. And so um, don't, don't quit trying to choose your own. And then the back end definitely covers a lot of qualities of like leadership and, and some of those sort of principles around that. And so, um, they're, they're good. Proverbs is just sometimes tough to read because some sections just feel like more choppy and this at times feels a little more choppy. It's like yeah. little couplets that you're like, Oh, that's a really good little couplet. And the next line is like a whole new subject. So I think one of the themes I saw in there that is really relevant for us today is this idea that like, you you can't follow your heart because God's way is best. And so when someone says to you, follow your heart, it's what's true. It's not actually. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit yep. your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. So uh, follow God and not your heart. 
Yeah. The whole (laughs) self-actualization, self-fulfillment idea that is uh, pretty much the most dominant theme in our culture right now um, is so contrary (laughs) to scripture. Yeah. yeah. There's plenty of Christian devotional books that seem pretty heavily influenced uh, by that that philosophy. And so uh, just be pretty cautious to read into those. They'll overlay a lot of spiritualism onto that very theme. And it's like, "Mm, no. Yeah. (laughs) So, all right, next week, what should we look forward to? All right. So in the Old Testament, when you're reading numbers, um, go ahead and add when you're reading, like when the subject changes or they do a new census or there's more numbers, go ahead and ask yourself, why is this in here? And and before you ask, like, why is this in here for me? Ask why it was in there for the original audience who was reading it for the Israelites. And that may help give you some understanding. Um, and then in the New Testament, I think Acts 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira is just pretty fascinating. Uh I feel like I could read it and not blink an eye if I were reading it in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it seems a little more shocking, which is an indicator that I personally need to grow better in my understanding of the how God is the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. But just pay attention to that and try to try to figure out what God was doing there and why he did that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I really just have a New Testament contribution to this week, but uh, I think sometimes we have this romantic idea of what the early church was like. Mm-hmm. And as if like, because we read that statement from Acts 2 where they all have everything in common and it's amazing and stuff like that. But th- but we also encounter pretty quickly some some kind of jacked up stories <laughs> between uh, Ananias and Sapphira who are lying about stuff. Then you have um, some of the widows of basically the Herodians, these Gentile Christians who are not being taken care of. And so like there's gaps and they're imperfect and they're, they're struggling through. And if you read through Paul's letters, like the churches sometimes were really jacked up. And so um, I think sometimes going, you know what? Uh, Yes. Like my church is messed up and the churches in the first century were messed up and uh, sin still is, is part of the church and we can grieve that and we can long for, for it to be restored. But as long as sinners still make up the the bulk of the church, which is everybody um, that that's, that's part of the nature of church. And so sometimes not trying to romance to size. Mm -hmm. I think um, um, it was, uh, Oh, Oh my gosh. Why is his name escaping me in Nazi Germany? Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yeah, Bonhoeffer, who, who says that the greatest enemy of community is idealism yeah. and, um, and and making sure that we have a, a biblically informed, not just an, uh, uh, an Acts, the end of Acts 2 informed picture of the church uh, that we bring into our own churches. So yeah, that's it. Cool. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.